Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. Most of the time I speak, it begins with something that started when my wife, Diane, and I were taking a walk, or a conversation we had, or any number of things. This one goes a little bit before that. This one starts back in 2005. I was a young man in college, and I was in a relationship with a woman I was convinced I was going to marry. I knew it. She was a beautiful Messianic Jewish girl, and I was head over heels. And getting that relationship was no small thing for me either, because her family had fled the Soviet Union, and when her dad gave me permission, uh, he was former Soviet intelligence, and I thought I was going to have to fight him, and that was actually kind of scary. Uh, he didn't. That was good. He would have won that. Things didn't stay so rosy for too terribly long, though. In time, I realized that I wasn't the right man for her, and she wasn't the right woman for me, and we broke things off. And that left me really wondering, if she wasn't the one, then who is? Because... To my knowledge, at that point, she was the best. And so I turned to the word, and I looked for, what am I looking for in a wife? And anyone who turns to scripture and looks for some text somewhere that talks about godly women at any point, you will immediately come to the Eshet Chayil in Proverbs 31. Eshet Chayil min an accomplished woman who can find far beyond pearls is her value. Her husband's heart relies on her and he shall lack no fortune. She repays his good but never his harm all the days of her life. She seeks out wool and linen and her hands work willingly. She is like a merchant's ships. From afar she brings her sustenance. She arises while it is yet nighttime and gives food to her house on her ration to her maidens. She envisions a field and buys it. From the fruit of her handiwork, she plants a vineyard. With strength, she girds her loins and invigorates her arms. She discerns that her enterprise is good, so her lamp is not snuffed out by night. Her hands, she stretches out to the distaff, and her palms support the spindle. She spreads out her palm to the poor and extends her hands to the destitute. She fears not snow for her household, for her entire household is clothed with scarlet wool. Luxurious bedspreads she made herself. Linen and purple wool are her clothing. Distinctive in the councils is her husband when he sits with the elders of the land. She makes a cloak to sell and delivers a belt to the peddler. Strength and majesty are her raiment. She joyfully awaits the last day. She opens her mouth with wisdom and a lesson of kindness is on her tongue. She anticipates the ways of her household and partakes not of the bread of laziness. Her children arise and praise her, her husband, and he lauds her. Many daughters have amassed achievement, but you surpass them all. False is grace, vain is beauty, a God-fearing woman, she should be praised. Give her the fruits of her hand and let her be praised in the gates by her very own deeds. That's a tall order to find. A lot of women who read that section secretly hate it because it is such a tall order to live up to. The thing is, 
2005 me, 2006 me, read that, and it made me very introspective. Because I had to ask myself, am I the man that woman marries? And the hard answer was, not really. A lot of men, especially young men, have a desire. And it's not really a goal. I'll explain. Years ago, a friend and mentor of mine asked me, he said, Rusty, what are some goals that you have? And I told him, this is before I was married, I said, I want to I wanna have, a, one day have a great marriage, I want to raise great kids, and I want to be really successful at a job. And he thought for a minute, he kind of smiled, looked at me, and he said, those are horrible goals. What? What do you mean those are bad goals? Those are great things. And he goes, well, the problem is, you have no control, really, over any of that. Wanting a great marriage is a fantastic desire. You have to focus on making yourself a man who is a good husband. Wanting to raise great kids is a fantastic desire, but you have to focus on being a good father. And whatever profession you take on, you can only control what you put into it and your activity. Your boss or a client could wake up on the wrong side of the bed one day and fire you. You have no control over that. So I thought, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to make goals. And setting goals is really important because you're not going to hit a target that you're not shooting for. Anyone who's shot knows that. And we often underestimate what we can do in six years and overestimate what we're going to get done in six months. So I set a goal to make myself the kind of man the Eshet Chayil marries. And that meant that I couldn't be too attached to the kind of person I was at the time. And so like I told a friend years ago when she was setting a goal, how attached are you to you? Not everyone takes that very well. Well, how attached are you to you? Do you have your life together? Or do you need the advice that has been going around? Make your bed and get your life in order. We're gonna talk today about the kind of man the accomplished woman marries, the virtuous woman. What is her husband like? Because if you look around a society, there is a shortage of strong men. We need tough men. The thing is, women who have been hurt by men are afraid of strong men. And as Jordan Peterson said, if you think tough men are dangerous, just wait until you see what weak men are capable of. King Ahab was weak. Most biblical, our forefathers, uh, biblical figures, when they made mistakes, they were not operating in their strength. They were letting weakness come through. It is important that men are strong and tough because a weak man, man is not a good man. It says in Amos 3 verse 3, will two walk together unless they are agreed? An accomplished woman marries an accomplished man. The woman described in Proverbs 31 does not marry a guy who hangs out and his primary hobby is Netflix and beer. It seems obvious 
But so many young men set their sights on a woman who walks out some of that, or that is the path she is on, and it's almost hilarious to watch because he doesn't realize how outclassed he is, that their lives are not at all walking in agreement. And like Rav Shul said in 2 Corinthians 6, he cautioned the believers in Corinth against being unequally yoked. So men, especially young unmarried men, is that the path you are on to be the kind of man that woman marries? Proverbs 31 mentions the husband several times. One of the first mentions of him, the trait of the Eshechayil's man, is that he is emotionally available. Anyone who knows me knows, if it weren't in the text, I would not lead a list of godly man's traits with emotional availability. But that is the first thing it really mentions about him. Verse 11, her husband's heart relies on her. Heart. That doesn't mean it's the physical organ. That's the seat of who you are. Your desire, your imagination, your trust, your love. It relies on her. It means you have a heart that is willing to trust, that your emotion and your desire, your imagination leans on her, that you're not some caricature of stoicism, that you're responsive, that when times are tough, you don't push her away. Now, single guys, you might be thinking, how do I develop this if I'm not married? The way you treat your mother and your sister or sisters now, any woman will look at that and say, that is how he will treat me one day. And I assure you it is 100% true. When I learned that, I treated my mother and sister much better. We also realize that if his heart is relying on her, he is forgiving. He forgives. Not just her, because she, for all the wonderful traits she has, she's not perfect, that we all make mistakes, big and small. If you haven't, then wait, you've still got time. But he's forgiving towards her and himself, that he doesn't make a mistake and then spend the rest of his life dwelling on it. Read King David's story. He never really recovered from Bathsheba. He was a completely different man after that. I'll give you an acid test, a litmus test for if you've actually gone through real forgiveness. About a couple of years ago, I uh, partially tore my hamstring where it, where it connects around the hip flexor. And that hurt like crazy. It hurt really bad. I, I tried not to act like I was limping around. These stairs were difficult. It hurt. Less than a year later, it was mostly fine. So someone asked me, how's your hamstring doing? I would have said, it's okay. And that's the truth. I have memory of the pain, but I don't currently experience pain. If someone has done something to hurt you and someone brings that person up, if you don't just have a memory of the pain, but you still feel anger, frustration, envy, jealousy, 
If you feel a sense of retribution, oh, they're still gonna get what's coming to them. You have not actually forgiven. And that applies for your own slip-ups as well. When you think about it, if you have more than a memory of the pain, you have not actually forgiven yourself. Just as it applies with physical hurts, emotions are the same. Forgiveness is love in action. You always have to forgive yourself and always seek restoration. Not doing so is spiritual pride and ignorance. We see the Ashet Hayil's man, he's emotionally responsive in that he has emotions. Seems obvious. In John eleven thirty five, 35, it's the shortest verse in all of scripture. Yeshua wept. Yeshua regularly expresses emotion, whether it was weeping or encouraging. He regularly was very emotive. He at times got angry and grabbed whips and chased people out of places. Although that was not his norm, so it's not an excuse for throwing tantrums. He would love, he would encourage, he would express feelings in a godly manner. He was responsive. One time I was standing and thinking about something and I I looked at Diane, my wife, and she said, you're not listening to me. And I said, well, that's a weird way to start a conversation. She didn't think it was funny. You have to be present. If your heart is going to rely on your wife, you have to be present. Not just physically, but emotionally as well. And I've got some bad news for some of you. These traits are learned. You don't wake up one day having gained them through osmosis with the bed sheets and the pillow. You learn them through mentors and through people who disciple you, through people who are a little further along on the path. I don't know where I would be if I hadn't had a number of men in my life who poured into my life over the years. Almost everything I have that I am deeply thankful for was because of that. Everything. If you don't have mentors in your life, I don't know what you're doing with your life. If you want to learn these things, you have to want it more than money, more than gold or silver or air. There's the story, I believe it originates, it goes all the way back to Socrates, although it's told in different ways over the ages, of a man who came to him and said, I want to, I want to learn to be as wise as you. And he said, okay, come with me down to the river. He goes down to the river and Socrates pushes his head under the water. And the man starts to thrash and he starts to kind of almost choke underwater. He doesn't want to actually inhale the water because that will kill you. And when he decides he's had about enough, he lets him come up for air and he says, what did you want the most? when you were underwater and the man, young man said, air. And he said, you have to want wisdom more than that. So these skills and these traits, they are learned. If you want wisdom, you have to want it more than air when you are being drowned. If you want forgiveness, if you want to show forgiveness, you have to want it more than the air that is the lifeblood that if most of you were deprived of it for a minute, you would pass out. If you don't want this with everything you've got, you won't Find it. 
It's hard. This is hard stuff. Which, conveniently, the second trait is he is hardworking. Bishop man, he is emotionally available and hardworking. Her husband's heart relies on her, and in the same verse, and he shall lack no fortune. In verse 11. And a lot of translators and commentators don't know what to do with that word fortune. In Hebrew, it's the word shalal. And it can mean plunder or spoil or prey or dubious gain. And so there's two camps on how to translate that. He shall lack no fortune. He will lack no good, as Rashi puts it. But the two translations aren't necessarily opposed. They can be complementary to each other. The two interpretations are either he will have no lack of good or he won't need to resort to doing bad. That he will be blessed. And being blessed often feels like a lot of hard work. When Israel was getting ready to cross into the Jordan, over the Jordan into the land, they were being told, you are not going to keep getting water from a rock and bread falling from the sky. You're going to do what? Plant and harvest. And you're coming into a good land. And you're going to reap the produce from vineyards that you didn't plant and orchards that you have not cared for but you're still gonna have to do the work. And you're gonna do so much of the work, there's gonna come a point that you have so much of a harvest, you're gonna be very tempted to say, look what I did. Isn't it amazing? Thank goodness we don't do that today. There's a story about a farmer and a preacher. A preacher's going down an old country road with all these farmhouses and these small farms. And he comes across this one farm that was gorgeous. It had a small orchard, peach trees and apple trees, pear trees. It had a vineyard. It had multiple flower gardens. It, hand over fist, looked far better than any of the farmhouses around it. And the farmer was out there tending to the vineyard. The preacher walks up to the farmer and he says, my gosh, this is such a beautiful piece of property you have. God surely has blessed you. Look at this amazing piece of land God's given you. And the farmer paused and thought for a second and said, well, you should have seen it when he had it all to himself. (laughs) Being blessed feels like hard work. You aren't always going to feel like you're being blessed while you're being blessed. Often, it will feel like having to apply overwhelming amounts of courage or discipline which are things that you learn. Her husband's heart relies on her and he shall lack no fortune. It is no coincidence that these two are linked. The third trait of an Eshet man is that he is a leader. Distinctive in the councils is her husband when he sits with the elders of the land. In verse 23. Many translations will say he's known in the gates. That word known is yada, which means he's known biblically. Like They really know who he is. He's not this person that shows up intermittently and randomly and ghosts at times. That he is known by everyone. He is a leader in his community. Leaders become good leaders by first becoming good followers. If you join the military as an officer... What rank do you join as? 
Second lieutenant for most branches, ensign for the Navy. You don't sign up and immediately get the rank of admiral or general. Could you imagine someone with no training being in charge of an aircraft carrier strike group or multiple battalions in war? It would be a disaster. You first learn to be a good leader by being a good follower. Unfortunately, today, many people play a game called follow the follower. There's a funny story about that. There's a plant foreman. He ran a ship at the plant and he would every day walk down to the plant for his shift. And on the way, there was a clock store. He would see this clock store and he would stop outside and like many clock stores, especially in older times, I don't know if we have clock stores today. There's this giant clock in the window and he'd look at this giant clock and then he'd walk on to work. One day, the owner of the clock store, he sees this guy doing this every day. So he walks out and starts up a conversation. Hi, I notice you stop in front of my store every day. And the man says, yes, I'm a foreman down at the plant. And he goes, okay, you always look at this large clock in the window. Why is that? And he says, well, I'm a foreman at the plant, and so I sound the quitting whistle every day at 4 p.m. And so I set my watch to 4 p.m. by your clock. And the clock store owner kind of cringes, and he goes, well, I actually set my clock every day at 4 p.m. to the quitting whistle down at the plant. Over, over time, they could have gotten many, many minutes off because the follower was following the follower. Real leadership is something that you learn. It is something that you constantly have to strive for and you have to know when to apply it because every good leader knows how to follow because there is a time to lead and there is a time to follow. There's a list of fantastic leadership traits of various men in scripture by Glenn Rager, and I'm gonna run through it. One example of biblical leadership is with Noah. The leaders do what's right even when they're alone. A second is with Abraham. The leaders embrace the unknown. Get out of your father's house, only what you can carry, if even that, and you're gonna to go to a land you don't know. A third one, leaders endure in spite of the circumstances. How many of us will go through a bout of some frustration, whether it's unemployment or the loss of a relationship? Joseph was in prison for years and he still remained faithful. A fourth is Moses. Leaders stick up for their people. When God said, get off this mountain, I'm gonna destroy this people and start over with you, Moses replied, I'm not going anywhere. Why are you mad? And they're your people, not mine. He stood up to God for Israel. Another is Joshua. He ruled by example rather than command. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He didn't say, do as I say and not as I do. He set an example with the expectation that others would follow. Or King David, who before he was king, leaders are not afraid of giants. Or Isaiah, when he rose to the occasion, he nae here I am. He didn't wait for God to shine a light on him and say, this is what you're going to do. There was a need and he said, I'll do it, send me. Or Daniel, 
who maintained his faith and resolve regardless of the consequences. It would have been so easy for Daniel to say, you know what, I'll just pray quietly to myself. I'll go into a closet. The only way people knew he was praying was because he let them hear it. He was not going to be okay with having an outward compliance to a bad law Well, he was inwardly compliant to God. Regardless of the consequences, he was faithful. Or Yochanan, John the Immerser. Leaders are not afraid to call out hypocrites. Now, hypocrisy is an interesting thing. Because I remember, I believe it was Dennis Prager, who made a comment of, if hypocrisy is just at some point you say one thing and do another, I think we should all strive for that at some point. Because if you're always doing what you say, that means you've set the bar really low. If you can manage to never make a mistake from the principles you espouse, it means you're, either you are an amazing person or your principles aren't that great. Hypocrisy comes from acting, mask, that you're pretending, that your values that you put forward are just to put on a show and nothing more. We have an example with the master, Yeshua, that leaders are servants. You will never be successful in leadership of any kind, whether over your home, whether over a business, whether in a congregation or anything else, if you are not a servant. And any business owner knows if you are not providing a service that people want, you're not gonna be in business much longer. It applies everywhere. Another example is from Shimon Kifa. Peter, leaders are able to recover from failure because at some point we will all fail. In the Navy for decades, there was a rule that if you were gonna put on chief, which is E7, you had to go to captain's mast at least once, which means you had to get in trouble at least one time because they wanted to see what you would do when you got in trouble. Is it something you could come back from or would you throw a fit, stomp your feet? I don't deserve this. What I did wasn't that bad. Or would you be humble, take the punishment and recover and come back stronger? And a final example, number 12, is from Rav Shaul, Paul, that leaders are passionate for what they believe in. Rav Shaul showed extreme amounts of passion before he came to Messiah, albeit in a very bad way, because he was persecuting the early believers. And when he came to faith in Yeshua, he was twice as passionate about furthering the kingdom of God. You might look around and say, I don't see a need for leadership. Well, I disagree. I see an overwhelming need for leadership because a goal that I personally have is I want to be part of a group of men that are so strong that no one can tell who the leader is. The fourth trait is that he is a source of blessing. He's emotionally available, he's hardworking, he's a leader, and he is a source of blessing. It says in verses 28 and 29, her children arise and praise her, her husband, and he lauds her, many daughters of amassed achievements, but you surpass them all. Now, why does he say this? 
Is it because she has arrived that she had become the pinnacle of woman and that now she had earned it to receive this blessing? So the question is, did she deserve that blessing? And I'll tell you right now, it does not matter. It is a rule that you, to draw out someone's best qualities, attribute them to them. I don't tell my kids, oh, you're fast and strong because they're Olympic athletes. You want to draw out the best in people by speaking blessing to them. In a book that's closing on 100 years old, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, he has a chapter on this. He writes... Remember, this is from 19, he wrote this book in 1936, I believe. A friend of mine, Mrs. Ernest Ghent, hired a servant girl, telling her to report for work the following Monday. In the meantime, Mrs. Ghent telephoned a woman who had formerly employed this girl. All was not well. When the girl came to start work, Mrs. Ghent said, Nellie, I telephoned the other day to a woman you used to work for. She said you were honest and reliable, a good cook, and good at caring for the children. But she also said you were sloppy and never kept the house clean. Now, I think she was lying. You dress neatly. Anybody can see that. And I'll bet you keep the house just as neat and clean as your person. You and I are going to get along fine. She attributed to her the best qualities and set the expectation. And he concludes the chapter, if you want to influence the conduct of a man without arousing resentment or giving offense, remember, give a man a fine reputation to live up to. He expresses what many people know, many leaders know, that you do not draw out someone's best by scolding them or belittling them or gossiping about them to other people. That is how you drive someone away. That is how you split communities. That is how you drive family members apart. James says in chapter one of his letter, if anyone thinks himself to be religious yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless or vain. Words are powerful. Words can create. Your words speak more than you know because God spoke the entire universe into existence and we are created in his image. Our words have power. Your thoughts have power. Take soil, dirt. Soil doesn't tend to care what you plant in it. It will return whatever you plant. If you plant an apple seed and it's good soil and you tend to it, you will likely grow an apple tree. If you plant corn, you'll get corn. If you plant hemlock or nightshade, you're going to get poisonous plants. So many of us with our words and with our thoughts, in our minds and our hearts, we plant hemlock and nightshade and then we get frustrated that we have not reaped corn or wheat. Our words have more power than we know. And it says in Galatians 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, this he will also reap. It is important 
more than we know that we plant good seeds, that we not speak bad things about others or to others. Be very careful with your criticism, and especially when it comes, men, to your wives, be very gracious with your praise. Plant good seeds and make sure the thoughts that you plant and the words that you speak are bringing forth fruit. And if they're not, get rid of them. Cut it out. Remember that God is a God of empathy, of understanding. He understands everything that we go through. And he still speaks wonderful things to us. As it was in the parsha today that Scott read, it's not because you were the best. It's not because you were fantastic and awesome and you were just the best nation. You've been disobedient as long as I've known you. But God still blesses Israel and calls us his. God is a God of empathy because he knows our suffering. As he told Moses, I've seen and I know their suffering before he even took them out of Egypt. To understand all is to forgive all. And we see the Ashet husband being an understanding and a forgiving man, a man of blessing. Once you understand the power of your words and your thoughts, you will stop blaming everyone else, your life conditions, and you will take responsibility for your life. Will the music team please come up? When you do this, you will form healthy relationships, you will work hard, you will learn how to lead, and you become a source of blessing to the people around you. I'll close with a piece of the best advice I ever received and a psalm. I was once told by a very accomplished man, take responsibility for everything in your life, the good and the bad the wonderful and lovely and the ugly, and your life will be cake. If you spend your time blaming others, no matter how entitled you feel to that, you're gonna have a very difficult life. That man knew a lot about hardship. He was a combat-tested Navy SEAL sniper. He knew what he was talking about. Take responsibility for everything in your life, the good and the bad. And you will learn to form healthy relationships, to work hard, you will learn how to lead, and you will be a source of blessing. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Ashrei Haish, blessed is the man. Would you please stand and pray with me? Avinu Shavat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. Lord, I thank you for the souls that you placed in each and every person here. Lord, I thank you for your word that you give us, for encouragement, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that we would be made perfect as you are perfect, for you call us to be holy as you are holy. 
Lord, I ask that you would create in the men here and each and every man here, regardless of age, a desire to be the man you have called him to be. Lord, I ask that whatever vision and purpose you've placed on their lives, I ask that you would give them the strength and the discipline to carry out the calling that you, the most high God, their king and their maker have given them. Lord, I thank you for this day that you've given us, this Sabbath, and I ask that we would rejoice and rest in it and that we would be your children and you would be our God for all of our days. Lord, I ask that you would hear our prayer and receive it in the name of your son, Yeshua. It is not on our own merits that we come to you, but in the name of your son, our Messiah and King. Amen. Shabbat shalom.